this week and next week the more excellent way. If you have your Bibles, would you turn to 1 Corinthians? I'm going to read chapter 12 and go into chapter 13. Chapter 13, most people will know, at least bits and pieces of it from... Uh, well, sometimes marriage is like a funeral, is that what you mean? Most of the time you see that weddings. <laughs> speaking about love this week and next week out of 1 Corinthians 13, but I'm going to start in chapter 12 so you get an understanding of why this very famous chapter, so famous that even many unbelievers know it by heart. And when we get to chapter 13, you will see chapter 13, if it's your first time going through it, it speaks for itself. And for many of us, you'll say, oh, I heard that before, that's where it is. So let's go into chapter 12, I'll start in verse 12. Listen to the Apostle Paul as he's addressing the church corporate. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews and Greeks, slaves are free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I am a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, but yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again to the head, to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor, and our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked, that there may be no division in the body. Now listen to this. This is chapter 13 is all about this verse. But that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ, the church, and indivi individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, and administrating in various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? But earnestly desire the higher gifts. And I will show you a still more excellent way. If I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and have all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but I have not love, I have nothing. 
give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in the mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. Let's pray. Father, give us understanding on what the Apostle Paul is encouraging us, Father. Let us know the more excellent way. God, if there's any childlike ways in us, forgive us. If we lack patience, forgive us. If we lack kindness to all, no matter what, indiscriminately, forgive us. If we're rude, help us. If we're boastful and prideful, forgive us. If we continually hold on to a wrong suffer, because we are in the right, and they are wrong, and I have the right to be angry with someone, forgive us our childish ways, God. Father, I pray that when we leave this room today, God, we will have a better understanding of the love that Jesus Christ showed us on the cross when we were still sinful, when we were still arrogant, when we were still sinning. Christ died for us and showed us his love. Help us today, Father God, understand this great intangible of life. And without this great intangible of love, there is no life at all. All we do is exist in Jesus' name. Amen. The great intangible, it's unfortunate that we actually think we can generally live life without this great intangible of love in our hearts. I challenge you today. Are we existing? Are we truly living? Are we getting up every day, day to day, and just living our life? Are we thriving in life? Do people see something genuinely different in us? Are we experiencing this kind of love the Apostle Paul talks about? Are we going through the motions of interpersonal relationships, harboring resentments, harboring personal feuds in our heart? Are we being boastful? Are we being arrogant? Are we being prideful? In our heart, we don't have to let anybody know. We might put the face on and nobody can see, but in our heart, this is all about the attitude. Chapter 13 is all about inner attitudes of the heart. This chapter might be one of the most famous verses and chapters of the whole New Testament. As I said, many unbelievers know it. It's a favorite of ministers at weddings, and it's probably the high watermark of human experience, this type of love. This is something we should admire to it, and we should stand under this, this definition of love and say, my goodness, how much I failed. 
Help me, God, to be that better husband. Help me to be the better pastor. Help me to be a better son and a better friend. Help me to reach out to the people that don't even like me and still meet their needs because Jesus says, love thy enemies. It's probably the highest thought on love in all human literature. Nothing can compare to the height and depth and breadth of love that's expressed in this chapter. Paul calls it the more excellent way. And I will talk about that. Many know its teachings. Many would agree with its conclusions. But those same people would quickly acknowledge that it's outside their reach. They could never obtain such a definition of this type of love. I think we'd all have to agree with that. Even a young Christian could be here hearing this message and reading those words for the first time and would feel unable to acquire such heights of selfless love. Even a mature Christian can read this after many, many years of being a Christian, doing everything they can and still fall far short of its content. But fortunately... For us who trust in Christ, who is the perfect example of the more excellent way, he's also the one who quietly transforms us from the inside out to live this type of love. You don't have it, don't look for it. It's not in you. Look to Jesus, and he gives it. Many would think I could never... Oh, they actually this. You don't have to raise your hand. Do you think you can live under that mandate? Never to be rude, never to be boastful, never take a wrong into account. Can you be kind to all people? Can you be patient with the impatient? But let's be real. Let me give you an example. 1984, I walked into a karate studio, something I always wanted to do, something always on my heart. I had no idea what it was about. I just joined. I paid $120. They gave me a gear. I went home. I didn't see a class. I didn't see a teacher. Just a guy, the administrator. I walked in two days later with my white belt on. I'm all ready to go. I was all empowered. And there I went. And I started training. And six months later, I became a blue belt. And, well, I thought I was it. And I was invited to see a black belt test. It was grueling. But the worst part was the last half hour when you had to sit there and fight one half hour nonstop. And if you got knocked down, you had to get back up and they waited. I saw one guy get his nose broken, go to the hospital, come back and finish the test. That's how brutal it was. I remember leaving there and I thought I could never do that because I couldn't. As a young martial artist, I could have never done what I saw others do. But guess what? Three and a half years later, I was able to do that. Same thing with Christianity. You can read what we read today. And you should be able to say, no way I can do that. But the closer you walk with Jesus Christ, and the more you fall in love with him, and the more you understand what Christianity is about. Christianity is about other people, not ourselves. When you understand this, 1 John the Apostle says... This is being perfected in love. And as we grow in Christ, we have a lot of failures in this area. Please, 
I'll be the first one to say I'm still failing. But man, God has taken us a long way, hasn't he? And no matter how long we're a Christian, no matter how old we are, it always tastes sweet when you have victory over selfishness. And you have victory over unforgiveness. And you have victory over rudeness and boasting and anything else that's up there. We'll go through all this vice, this dirty laundry list later on next week. Today I'm just going to speak about a couple of things about loving kindness, uh, uh, kindness and patience. But I try to use that analogy because there are times in a Christian life that the ideal of love is just so far above us. It's so immense that I could never, ever think about reaching up and living a life like that. But let me tell you now, when Apostle Paul calls it the more excellent way, for this man, I want no other way to life but the more excellent way. I love it. I cherish it. I cherish the thought of being patient and kind to people that don't even like me. I love it. It gives me purpose. I don't have to be angry with people anymore because God has taught me to love and care for all. It's great. It's the most freeing existence you can know. If I were to ask you to take an inventory of your mind and your heart today, what is actually going on, what's driving some of these negative emotions we have, is it being resentful, are you holding on to a wrong suffering, are you going through life like you are the victim of some injustice and it's characterized in everything you do, say or think. And if it's not you today, have you ever been there? If it's not you today, and if you've never been there, you will soon. It's a human dynamic. <laughs> Historically, I had to read chapter 12, because this is why, for most of you people that don't understand the New Testament. This chapter is written by the Apostle Paul as a gentle rebuke to a church. It was a church that knew nothing about God, knew nothing about Christianity, until the Apostle Paul was walking through a place called Corinth. Corinth, if you don't know anything about it, was a seafaring town with all the vices you could imagine in a seaport town of 2,000 years ago. And Paul went there with fear and trembling, and he preached and guess what happened? People came. And they came. And he preached in the marketplaces. And he went to the synagogues. And he told them that Jesus Christ came to show them the more excellent way. That Jesus Christ came and paid for their sins. And they can have a vertical relationship with the real and true and living God in the universe. As they trusted in his son, life would change. And they came and they repented. And they changed their lives. And God blessed a small gathering, maybe 50, maybe 100, maybe 200 people, no more. And God gave them great gifts. They had gifts of healing, the gift of preaching, the gift of teaching, the gift of tongues. They could speak in other men's languages so people could understand what they were saying. This church was so gifted, was so used by God. But they couldn't live with each other. They didn't know how to get along with each other. They were competing one with another. 
writes this very touching rebuke on what the most important thing is. And it's not your position in your life, it's not your money, it's not your gifting. You could be a great singer, you could be a great preacher, you could be a great teacher, you can have miracles of healing, and, but it's not about you. It's about other people. God had equipped to carry the message of Christ in this church. God has equipped this church to strengthen one another up in their faith. This is one of the chief ends of spiritual life. This is one of the chief ends of church. Why we come to church is that we can encourage each other in our Christian faith to love God more and love one another more. That's what we do. That's why we come out. We come out to worship God and, and to make a difference in our life so we can make a difference in other people's life. We do that mutually. Not combative and, 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 and fighting and competing with one another. This is not a bunch of all-stars trying to be the best on the team. Christianity is a team sport and we do it together. Period. No one's greater than anybody else. And any other attitude does not fit. And that's what Paul's writing about here. He's going, God's giving you everything you need to be a successful church and to build each other's up in faith, but you're competing with one another. You're fighting with one another. One person says he's better than the other or his gift is better than them. And I need you, but you don't need me. So Paul gives us this metaphor of the body. Can the eye say to the foot, I have no need of you? It's rhetorical. Of course not. The eye needs the foot and the foot needs the eye. Whether they like it or not, we need each other. Amen? So it is. But unfortunately, this church was ripe with strife and discord. The rich in the church were mocking the poor. The poor in the church were going home hungry every service. Sexual sin was rampant. Believers were suing each other in the court of law. There were cliques everywhere. They were pitting one leader against another. False teachings were coming into the church. Unnoticed. As bad as this church was and all these other elements, the worst is they were prideful. Real arrogant pride. That was the worst offender. Some thought they were more spiritual than others because they spoke in tongues. Or others thought they were better and had superior gifts and everybody wanted to hear them what they had to say. What they needed was a way out of this spiraling down into self-destruction. So Paul shows them the more excellent way of life. Stop biting with each other. Stop fighting, biting, and devouring one another. I'll show you how you're supposed to get along. There's like a, a heavyweight fight, and the Apostle Paul is like, like the ring referee and he's jumping in between two fights that they're fighting dirty they're starting to bite and claw one another and Paul has to remind them that there's rules of engagement there's a proper way to do things Paul is getting in between this church and saying there's a proper way of doing things if you're going to live for God then there's a proper way of living life I'm going to show you the more excellent way Chapter 13 is reminded that Christianity is not about self, but about others. Who wants to be a winner in God's eyes? 
hands, a couple of honest hands. I saw a finger go up. And hit. I don't know which finger that was, but I'll, I'll trust. We're Christians. We can joke, right? Can we joke? I'm the pastor. I can make a joke? All right, thank you. So a finger go up. If you want to be a winner in God's eyes, then become a loser to self-centered interest. Jesus went to the cross to die for others. He was sinless. He didn't have to. And that's how we are to live our life. We are to live our life like some other people are more important than me. This is what makes the Christian church unique in all the world. It's one of the elements that makes us unique in all the world. The Christian community should be a community of different ethnicities, of different socioeconomic backgrounds, intellectual backgrounds. Everything should be represented, and it all works. Unity out of diversity. All different personalities, we all bring our idiosyncrasies, but as Paul uses an analogy, he gives greater gifts to people you would think, well, who would want to listen to them? But they're speaking on behalf of God. If you want to be a winner, be a loser to self-interest. Let's go to our text. Listen to the Apostle Paul. I'll read verses 1 to 3. If I speak in tongues of men and of angels, but I have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries, and I have all knowledge, and if I have faith so as to remove mountains of life, but I have not love, I'm nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Paul starts his antidote to human self-interest with a negative proposition. He's working from the lesser to the greater. He's basically saying to this church, if someone had this ability to speak with all the languages of men, did you ever know someone who speaks seven languages? Honestly, I have. It's an amazing thing to watch a man go from one language to the other to the other. It's a wow moment. But you know what that can do when you can speak seven languages or 14 languages? That, that, that can what? It puff you up. That's like, that's like a wow experience. Even if someone had the ability to speak all languages of men, wow, he's smart. And even speak angelic dialogue. If these gifts were not conducted for the welfare and the well-giving of other people, but only self-exaltation, look at me. Don't a lot of people do things to say, look at me. Look at me. Look at me. Then Paul says, it's empty. It's vain. It's good for nothing. You know why? Because it profits nobody. At the end, all things remain the same. No, nobody's changed. We're just going along. Your gifting has not touched my life. I have no admiration for it. It doesn't make me a better human being. It's not bringing me closer to God. I'm not dying to self. So what Paul says, you can be all the gifted person you want, but if you're not doing it out of love, for that genuine love of the person, it brings no life. God's gifts 
in the church. I'm a pastor and I'm a teacher. If God gave me the gift of pastoring and of teaching to heal broken hearts, to heal broken lives, to heal marriages, to heal families, to bring people closer to God, to take people out of the darkness and bring them to Jesus Christ where eternal life is, and I'm not doing that out of a genuine love, it profits nothing. People see right through that, amen? People see right through that. In this church we're reading about, there's a lot of gift, but guess what? It's just a, a bunch of hot air. No one's changing. They're all thinking they're great. They got all these people being healed. Could you imagine seeing a human being healed of a, a dreaded disease right in your midst? It was happening, but it wasn't changing anybody. Everybody was still the same. They had no character, no genuine transformation character inside. Just a bunch of hot air. They carried no distinct tune to enjoy. He used the analogy of a, 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 of a clanging gong or a noisy cymbal. You're waiting to hear something sweet from the orchestra, and all of a sudden you hear it. And it's like, whoa, that's a noise to be avoided, not to be cherished. But when you hear a symphony, and you hear a drum, and the flute, and the oboe, and you hear it, this crescendo of music, it's like it lifts your soul. That's what love does. When someone's meeting your need out of genuine love and compassion, it meets what you need most, the more excellent way. Love has a way of elevating, bringing dignity back into someone else's life. If a person has only ability to forecast all future events, he calls a prophecy, or to have all knowledge, whether secular or sacred, to know all the disciplines of science that might need to be known, all the mysteries of the universe, to know everything the Bible says, to understand the word of God perfectly, but if I'm not doing it out of love, it's worthless information. If I have all the faith to remove mountains of doubt, and to see life's challenges, there's nothing at all to worry about. Because you trust God so much. Did you ever get around someone who trusts God so much that it encourages you and you find safety in it? But if you don't have love, it profits nothing. Even if a person would become a philanthropist and give everything they have away to the poor, so people would say, wow, that's great. If you're not doing it for the proper reason, if you're not giving out of the proper reason, it profits you nothing. God could care less. And even if a man was to give his life in the fires of martyrdom so that he could be admired by others, what loyalty? It profits that man nothing when he stands before God. Do you know everything we do in life we have to bring before God, we're going to stand before God, and He's going to give us an account of everything and every word we ever said.
God's eyes, it's all worthless. Because at the end, nobody's changed for the better. But the more excellent way looks to other people, to build them up, to edify them, to strengthen them, to see them do well in life. That's what the better way is. To encourage people. Love getting around and encourage. When you get around encouragers, they, they just get you to jump higher than you ever could thought. As an athlete, I had people that God has brought into my life that were able to reach down inside of me and bring something out I never knew existed in me. That's how we should be in life. Parents should be like that to their children. Fathers should be like that. Moms should be like that. Friends should be like that. We should look past the idiosyncrasies of personalities and love someone so much that we want to see them succeed in life. For many people, their whole life is nothing but empty showmanship, self-serving, even to their death. They give great gifts upon their death, hundreds of millions of dollars. I don't know people's hearts, but their name is on the building. If you know you're doing it for God, you give it all away and you say, don't, don't, don't even tell somebody who gave it to you. Let God get all the glory. Amen? Paul now shows the attitude of heart that pleases God in verses 4 to 7. I'm only going to speak on two. In attitudes that enrich and make every gift we have precious. I knew when I was a kid that I was able to encourage. I found that out very early in my life. I was an encourager. I just thought that something I did good or for whatever reason, I realize now it's a gift from God. And I did it in teaching physical fitness. I taught martial arts for many years. I taught men's Bible study. Now I'm a pastor. God has redeemed that gift that for many years I made a good living out of. He says, now I want you to give it to the church. See, any gift you have, God has put it. If you're successful in any area of your life, God has given you the gifts and the talents to be successful. But when I was younger, I kept it all for myself. But now the glory goes to Christ. When someone says, well, you did, I said, yeah, God gifted me with that. It has nothing to do with me. Paul gives 14 characteristics of living life with others. Seven are positive, seven are negative. He goes on to say this, love is patient and love is kind. He starts with two positives. Love is patient. Is not being patient through circumstances. This word in secular Greek 2,000 years ago, as it used in the Bible, is not being patient in tough circumstances. Anybody going through tough circumstances? Okay. It's not about being patient, just waiting for it to pass. You know, even the world says in 12-step programs, this too shall. All right. But does anybody change from it? This is not about circumstances. This is about being patient with irritable people. Now, does anybody have irritable people around? I saw two hands go up and three fingers, so I don't know what that But I have to ask this question. Are you ever the irritable person or is it always someone else? 
You know, I notice it's always someone else. It's never us, right? Everybody, I know what you're saying. I know someone who needs to hear that sermon. If you're saying that, you're the one who needs to hear the sermon. But patient in this card always talks about dealing with irritable people for whatever reason. Different idiosyncrasies really just get underneath the nerve. You're on your last nerve. And God says, no, you've got to be patient. You've got to be patient with them. You've got to look past what's annoying you. All right? And be patient with the person and wait. But this word love and kindness in the Bible are always together. It's never just patience. There's always this patience and kindness. Because God doesn't want you and I just being patient with someone, being passive. I can be patient with somebody, I just when they call, I don't listen. When I see them, I walk the other way. That's not patient. Patient is waiting and still being kind to that person. Patience and kindness. First and foremost, it's within the church context. We all get together, we sing our songs. Listen, I'm a Christian for 30 years. I'm pastoring over 10 years. And we get together and we sing our songs. And everybody looks, they look perfect. But behind closed doors, not everybody's perfect. And if you put a bunch of people, even Christians, together in a small room for a long time, guess what happens? Personality conflicts arise, and you don't like the way this one speaks, and this one smells, and this one this, and this, I hate the way the color of my hair, and I hate the way this one speaks, and all these ineratitudes happen up because we're just humans. And when you take humans and you put them together in one room for a long time, guess what? We act human. And God says, I can't do that. We're a church. We got to be different. We got to be patient and kind with one another, like God was patient and kind with us. Listen to Romans chapter 2. Listen to these two words together, patience and kindness, and it's attributed to God. Listen. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man. I'll explain everything to you. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things in your own life. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O oh man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourselves, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath, when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. This is the quintessential expression of the exercise of patience and kindness. Here God, the Apostle Paul is teaching us, puts up with humanity, a humanity that is seen as always judgmental, self-righteous and arrogant, while they themselves are practicing the same type of sin. And even though they deserve his wrath, God chooses to wait patiently for people. God can come and judge this world right now and he's in his right to do it. But he doesn't. He's patiently waiting for people to hear the message of salvation, put their faith in Christ, 
And while he is waiting, guess what God's doing? The rains are coming, right? The harvest is coming. The seasons are here. Life goes on, doesn't it? Isn't life good? Life is good. I like life. God allows us good because God is kind to us. That's where his kindness is found. Even though we're sinful, even though we're arrogant, even though we're judgmental, God is still kind to us. He enjoys us to hear a child's cry. He enjoys us to sit down and laugh with good friends over dinner and a glass of wine. He allows us to know success. He allows us to have ambitions and to fulfill those ambitions. He allows us to fall in love. He allows us to raise families. He allows all this, all this goodness. That's his kindness. When we are being tried and tested by tough personalities, we ought to take a step back and say, God, thank you for being kind and patient with me. I want to be asked, is anybody here perfect? Is God not patient with all of us over certain areas of our life? Then how can we be impatient with anybody? That's what Paul's saying. You, you, you're judging everybody, but you're impatient yourself. Are you, are you, you want God to be patient with you and kind to you, but you're patient and kind to nobody? And you think you're going to escape the judgment of God? That's what Paul is saying. Because mankind is selfly. Mankind is greatly self-deceived. God watches the intentions of the heart. Don't ever leave this building without hearing me, please. God does not judge simply the act. His judgment on the day of judgment, he judges the intentions and the attitudes of the heart. You see, we can keep things from each other. But you can't keep the intention from God. He sees it all. So when Paul is writing his letter here, and he's like a, he's like a, uh, he's in between two prize fighters that began to fight ugly. He gets in there and he reminds them of the way of God, the more excellent way. You and I need a constant reminder. We need to be patient with hard personalities. And not just being passive. We need to still be in someone's life, meeting their needs, whatever they are. That's being kind. Patient is waiting for something else. And the interim will be kind to them in spite of how they feel about us. Are you with me? Think about it now. Who would God want you to be patient and kind with? Is it a co-worker? Is it a family member? Is it a spouse? Who is it? Who, who in our life? I know I've got several people I, I'm exercising patience and kindness with. Is it easy? It's not easy. But what makes it easy? You see... Paul teaches us that God is patient and kind. It leads us to what? It leads us to a changed life. When you see someone who's annoying you, take an inventory and say, you know something, God? I'm going to be patient and kind until I see the result in their life. 
Jesus says, walk the extra mile, doesn't he? He says, turn your cheek. He says, be perfect like your Heavenly Father is perfect. Why many people have a hard time with being patient and kind with difficult people because they have no higher purpose for living. If you're living for yourself, you'll never, ever get over judging people easily. If you're living for yourself, you find it very hard to be patient with impatient people. If you're living for yourself, you'll never be able to be kind to a person that doesn't like you, and especially to love your enemies, because we're too easily offended. Are you hypersensitive? Are you easily offended by someone's personality? Are you easily offended by other people? Don't think of the other person. Think of what's going on inside your heart. See, God can be patient with us and still be kind to us because he knows his patience and kindness, as Paul teaches us, eventually leads some people to salvation. I was talking to a client of mine. I'm training them in the gym. After a while, people start opening up to me and speaking to me. He was talking to me about a dynamic within his family. And I listened. I listened for about three weeks before I even made a comment. Because when I hear something, I don't want to comment. I want to pray for that person. I want to pray for the family. I want to pray for what's going on. I just don't want to shoot things off the top of my head like I'm the answer man. I think. And I pray. So one day I was speaking to him. He, he brought it up again. And I said, are you asking my opinion? He goes, well, I wouldn't have told you. I said, so if you're asking me, I'll tell you. I said, the problem seems not to be in your child, but in you, who doesn't like, who lacks patience and kindness. Love draws the nonsense out of kids. You gotta love them. You gotta stay in someone's life long enough and show them enough love and kindness and forbearance that it begins to change them. See, that's heavy lifting. In relationships, it's easy to write a check, here's money. It's easy to say that. But to get into someone's life and walk with them, that's hard part. And not judge them at the same time. I said, what your daughter needs is for her father to love her. And not just tell her what to do. Walk in her shoes. Walk in her life. Meet her where she is. Teach her what love is. You know what he told me? He goes, I can't. I don't know what that is. See, he was honest. That was an honest self-evaluation of that man as a father. Those words, which really is just chapter 13, he never heard. How to love something out of a wayward child. Show them a more excellent way. You and I as Christians are called for that. In every area of life, whether I'm in the gym, I'm walking down third Avenue, I'm here, I want to love people and care for people so that God can use that to bring it into a more excellent way. Father, we come before you and we recognize how easily we can fall short of the more excellent way, God. We find it so easy to take each other's inventory. We find it so easy to be irritable. We find it so easy to be short with people and to be rude, Father God, because they're not living up to our standard. Father God, show us the highest standard. Show us how to live with somebody. 
hard personalities, oh God, and to make a difference in their life, Father God, not taking anything personal. Father, help us in this way, in this more excellent way, God. We, we desire something more in our life, God. We some, desire something more in our personal, interpersonal relationships, Father God. Teach us, oh God, to carry the more excellent way with us. Teach us to be kind. Teach us, Father God, to be patient with one another. Show us, oh God, the more excellent way in our heart. In Jesus' name. Amen. Before we close, I want to take a moment. As the ushers come forward. A sermon is not meant to entertain us for a short period of time while we're in the church. It is to cause us to think. To get a biblical view. To get a God's eye view of life. Amen? Think about this sermon this week. Think about being patient and kind. How many times God's going to allow you. You ready? The privilege of being patient and kind to people. That's a privilege. Bring it to the Lord. Start praying for people. Watch what happens. Watch things change. Patience and kindness changes life in the family. Patience and kindness changes life on the job. Patience and kindness does marvelous things. You just stick it out and you wait and you pray and watch what God does to people. So take this sermon this week and think about it and see how readily Available it is. By the end of today, you're going to need to exercise patience and kindness. <laughs> My wife is laughing at me because she's already exercising patience and kindness. But at least this week, remember, patience and kindness, it produces something good. Amen? Ushers, would you come forth as uh, we close? Uh, God bless you people as they give to the gospel, Lord God. Let them know that we are here to serve the community and serve those Christians around the world that are still suffering in Jesus.